Paul's introduction to the church at Philippi, this is just week number two in this brand new book of the New Testament. Brand new as far as us going through it, that is. The church of Philippi was formed on Paul's missionary journey, and it was formed roughly 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. So this is a church that is in its infancy. And Paul is addressing it to the members of the church, as we saw last week, noting that it also includes those he calls overseers and deacons. Overseers is is actually the word presbyteros, from which we get the word presbytery. It means elders in our context. And the deacons means deacons. All of which was to say, this is review, reveals both divine structure and divine organization of this embryonic church. Which means from its very inception, the church of Jesus Christ was an institution. Now what's the dictionary definition of institution? Here's what it is. An organization or establishment devoted to the promotion of a cause or program, especially one of public, educational, or charitable character. So understanding what it means in that sense to be an institution, it makes it hard to see a problem with the church being an institution. And yet when Christians refer to the institutional church, they usually use it as a pejorative. That means as kind of a bad word. Oddly, though, when they speak of the institution of marriage, they mean it in a good sense. So which is it? Last week, admittedly, I launched a bit in a reaction to the recurrent criticism of the church by those who, ironically, like it or not, admit it or not, are part of the institutional capital church C. Because every believer is a part of the church universal, whose expression is the body of Christ on earth, what we have this morning as we are here together in worship in churches all over the world. And I also reminded us the one salient fact last week, that for all of its warts and pimples, The church of Jesus Christ is nevertheless the bride of Christ. I understand that every Christian manages to find something wrong with the church today. I include myself in that. Everybody does. I'm the leader of this local church of Christ. And I tell you that I could sit down and I could come up with a list of all kinds of things wrong with this church. How can you not, when the very institution is comprised of, and by, and for, nothing but troubled, imperfect sinners? Duh. Does anyone really expect to find a local expression of the body of Christ without problems, without inconsistencies, and without weaknesses? I do a lot of cooking. And one thing I can tell you for sure is that no matter how skilled or how knowledgeable or how talented a chef one might be, if you use spoiled clams, I guarantee you will have a spoiled clam chowder. If you use a rotten avocado, 
I guarantee you're going to have rotten guacamole. And if you use imperfect, sinful people to build a church, you will have a church with troubles and weaknesses. (laughs) Amen. We just participated in a ritual called the Lord's Supper, and we do it, like I said, pretty much every month. Why? And why did Jesus say, as often as you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It's to remind us that we, you, me, are so messed up that we need a Savior who needed to die because we are so messed up and that we each deserve to die. So the cross is God's saying that he agrees. (laughs) He agrees. He knows that's why he came to be one of us. But the cross is also saying that God loves us, messed up as we are. And in spite of that, he did what was necessary to redeem us unto himself. So we have to agree that we are all dysfunctional to one degree or another. We cannot measure up to what God wanted for us individually and collectively as what is called the church. And yet it is we who make up the church. So this unending quest by so many Christians today to find the better the more biblical, the organic, or the more authentic church is itself just another manifestation of the inherent limitations of the church precisely because, again, it's made up of sinful people. And I hope that you never argue with someone, not if, but when they throw out the old hypocrisy bomb at you. You know it. Ah, oh, the church. Yeah, I try church. Yeah, I'm not going to go to church. It's just, it's just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Don't, don't even argue with that. Because they're right. Absolutely, they're right. And before you stands truly with the Apostle Paul, I have to say, I consider myself the biggest hypocrite of them all. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. This is exactly why we must have a Savior whose character, actions, and life are pleasing to God because we are not. Choosing to be ignorant of this breeds all kinds of expectations which no church on earth can meet. And when someone brings up the holy-sounding demand for a return to the New Testament church, Again, I have to question the person's understanding of the New Testament church. I mentioned last week that if ever there was an organic and authentic church, it was the New Testament church at Corinth. It was so organic and it was so authentic that the Apostle Paul had to excoriate the Christians there repeatedly with many examples and on numerous occasions. With rare exception, 
the New Testament church was morally bankrupt beyond even the culture of unbelievers it was supposed to be reaching for Christ. And so the church at Corinth was not some just some bad exception to the rule. It was the rule. Why? Again, because it's made up of flawed, failing people. Which brings us to the seven letters to the seven churches. Where does that come in? In the last book of the Bible. In the book of Revelation. And I believe that it is God's parting shot, if you will, across the bow of all the churches to come throughout history. So, you want to be a New Testament church. Okay. How about the church at Ephesus? Revelations 2. The Lord speaking. I have this against you. That you have left your first love. It's not referring to girlfriends and boyfriends. It's referring to a church that had abandoned the Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Ephesus. Authentic. Organic. Therefore remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else... I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Well, well, okay, not the church at Ephesus. Okay, how about Pergamum? What about the body of Christ at Pergamum? Well, I have a few things against you, says the Lord, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. And the them are those in the church at Pergamum, the organic, authentic church of the New Testament. Well, not Ephesus and Pergamum. Okay, how about Thyatira? I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds, and I will kill her children with pestilence. Praise the Lord. And all the churches will know that I am He, I am He who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds in the church at Thyatira. Well, not those three New Testament organic authentic churches. Okay, we're still going. What about Sardis? To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, Oh, I know your deeds. That you have a name, that you are alive. We're the happening church. We're the hip church, man. We're the hip with the church with the positive message. <laughs> you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead, says the Lord. Yeet. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain which are about to die. 
for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Okay, not that organic, authentic church either. But those are all biblically wayward churches, right? Well, let's go to Laodicea. No glaring immorality mentioned at the church of Laodicea. And in fact, if I could be so bold, and I will, the evangelical church, don't confuse that with the evangelical free church of America, although don't exclude it. I'm just saying evangelical simply means simply Bible-believing church today. I think if any of these pertain to what we would call evangelical, truly, truly Bible-believing churches today, Let's hear about the church at Laodicea, the authentic, organic New Testament church. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of Nothing, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. There's five of the seven. Now, the last two, Philadelphia and Smyrna, in a sense are outliers, just on a statistical basis. They were the two that were actually commended by the Lord. There was no criticism, no complaint by the Lord. Two out of seven, by inference, that is 72% of the churches of which the Lord is speaking throughout history are not merely imperfect, but are so seriously flawed that they risk losing their divine endorsement or their divine legitimacy as representing the body of Christ on earth. But they're authentic, organic, and they are New Testament. Paul's letter that we are in to the church at Philippi was one of the better churches of the day. And so this was one of Paul's easier letters to write compared with some of the others that he wrote to the other churches. Let's begin this morning. I'm going to repeat verse 1 that we covered last week just to keep the context into verse 2. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons, new material, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I never noticed this before in all my years of reading through the Bible annually. But this greeting of Paul's to this church in verse 2 is essentially unchanged in every letter that Paul writes to both the various churches and the various individuals regardless of his tone and purpose in each one of those letters. So given that, is this just some kind of a formulaic opening, just a way to begin 
sort of a cliche that he throws out there. And why does Paul separate in this father and son if they are a unity of one? I mean, it's almost like he's pulling them each out distinctively, separately from one another, as if they are two totally separately uh, existing individuals. I found that curious. First, let's remember that the Holy Spirit who oversees the authorship of everything in the Bible does not use filler. So he's not looking for some cliche, putting it on the hearts and minds of the human writer to go ahead and put forth, in this case, Paul. In Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, Paul basically tells the people at Corinth that not everyone in the church is going to understand his words. He says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, pretty much right at the top, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot, not will not, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or discerned. Meaning, meaning they're not believers, they don't have the Holy Spirit, and so they can't understand what the Spirit is saying through the words of Paul. So Paul, in coming in, 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 in all of his letters to the various churches and the people that he writes, knows that in everything he is burdened to write about, even the good stuff, needs to be heard and understood through spiritually sensitive ears and open hearts. So his opening prayer, which is really what verse 2 amounts to, is both a request on one hand, as well as a statement or a reminder to them of the fact of what they have by virtue of their position in Christ, if in fact they have given their lives to Christ. Additionally, Paul's little prayer here is, like last week in verse 1, as I mentioned, is another theological statement underscoring that while the Trinity is in fact a unity, there is in fact distinction within that unity, but there is no separation. In other words, the Son died on the cross. The Father did not die on the cross. The Father's wrath was appeased. The Son's wrath wasn't appeased. He didn't have any wrath, but rather the Father's wrath was appeased by the sacrifice of the Son. God's grace comes through the sacrifice of the Son, satisfying the wrath of of the Father, which brings peace or friendship between the Trinity and mankind. There's also a silent partner here called the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives faith to receive that sacrifice on their behalf and the attendant grace and peace that comes by it. So this is a deeply theological statement and opening, not a trivial placeholder to increase the length of the letter. Verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. At the risk of sounding insincere, I can honestly say that I totally understand Paul's sentiment here. They are not the sentiments of many, maybe even most, pastors' experience, at least not those of which I am familiar. Being the chief shepherd of any church, 
for all the reasons I already stated, is always a mixed bag. The reason I've already mentioned, as I said, is because it's made up of sinners, operated by sinners, and it's led by sinners. So no pastor and no church on the face of this earth is going to be free of disappointment, free of challenges and struggles and heartache. But that being said, our time here at Faith, and I mean Barbara and me, has been as good as I think it can possibly be. And that is the way I would describe the ministry here, even over the long haul of two decades plus. When Paul writes that every prayer he offers up about them and for them is with joy, I don't believe that he means that he never offers up any kind of prayers for them. And I can say that because when we get to chapter 3, we get some strong hints of some of the challenges facing even this better-than-average Philippian church and the Philippian Christians there. But the hard and the painful prayers, as he has to offer up for some of the churches, are the exception to the rule. And the rule for this particular church is that Paul is invigorated by them. Paul is encouraged by them, and he's, he's looking forward to being with them and to seeing them again. And he deeply appreciates it, especially in light of the other churches that he has to deal with. <laughs> I just envision him in his prayer life, the Holy Spirit. Paul, I want you to go visit those Corinthians you've been writing. What? Uh, did you read the letter that I wrote them? <laughs> uh, sort of. And you want me to go visit them face to face? He even makes mention in one of his letters. Oh, yeah, I'm so bold when I'm writing. But I'm going to come and visit you face to face. Squeak, squeak, squeak. No, Paul never squeaked. (laughs) But he was not undaunted by the sentiments of man and the people that he was given assignment over. The Philippians, though, he looked forward to with joy. The first five helps us see his statement about prayer in the context in which he's writing, and that is the believers at Philippi have been with Paul from the very start, and they hadn't wavered as a body concerning their being with him since the beginning. And that is a unique experience. It is a unique experience that Barbara and I have had, seriously, the ultimate earthly blessing for a long time here at Faith even if it began somewhat tentatively. And I mean began from the very first days before I was even here. If you're not familiar with the candidating, that word candidating, it's what they call when they, they're looking for a new pastor and they bring the pastor in and they spend usually just a weekend or something with him and he gives the perfunctory obligatory uh, sermon by which everything is judged on his whole sermonic capabilities in that one sermon. And then they have interview after interview with all kinds of varying committees and it's a very wearing and grueling kind of weekend. And then on the basis of that through prayer, hopefully they make their decision on who they're going to at least extend the call as it's called, to come and be their pastor. 
from the moment we received that very first phone call from this church. Now, Barbara and I didn't know this because we didn't tell each other intentionally. But each of us, in hindsight, each of us knew that from just that very first introductory phone call that we were going to be going to Maine and coming to this church. The Lord just works that way. Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes, and he did in this case. Well, but there was a fly in the ointment. Because unbeknownst to us, of course, they were somewhat intimidated by the fact that they were a church of about 32 people, and we were a family of five, and they knew they couldn't afford to bring us on. They couldn't afford to pay us a livable, survivable wage. If they'd known our past, that wouldn't have intimidated them in the least because it certainly didn't intimidate us. So anyway, another phone call, I think, followed up, and uh, I thought things were going pretty well, and then we received another phone call many months later saying thanks but no thanks. Really? Oh. I was shocked. Shocked only because it was like, Wow, okay. It doesn't surprise me, Lord, that I misread you, but I really misread you on that one. And it turns out apparently Barb misread the Lord as well. But then as things progressed, it turned out we got another phone call. Now, we had made other plans. In fact, I was candidating in a local church in the Chicago area, and they needed a pastor right away because they had no pastor, and so we were local, and so they had me come and preaching for a six-week process of candidating and meeting with the church and all of that. So we were just seeking the Lord's will, and we get a phone call from Maine saying that the guy that they had called to come in my place turned them down. So now they were asking us to come and visit. So Barbara and I said, cool, literally, cool. <laughs> she said, cold, not cool. We were here in June. And let me tell you, our kids were still back in Chicago. I took my video recorder, which in that day was like this big. It was a shoulder mount. Remember the big RCA VHS tape in there? Oh, yeah, man. Because we wanted to give our kids a good feel for the area and everything. It was three days in the car, outside. It didn't matter. All you saw was rain on windshields and everything. Really, and the kids said, does it ever not rain there? And we're like, I don't know. That's not the worst part. It was like 44 degrees in June. So you see, it's nothing new. I started looking how to build a boat so I could go back to Britain, but wasn't there. When we came, when we came, John Karen McGowan picked us up at the airport. First stop was L.L. Bean. We actually knew of L.L. Bean. Um, we'd seen a catalog now and again, but I thought, this is cool. And John and Karen, if you knew John and Karen McGowan, they didn't seem all stuffy and nasty and everything else. But uh, anyway, one thing led to another, and we met with uh, the group of people. Like I said, it was, it, was, uh, it was not a committee. The church was a committee. And we met out in Belgrade Lakes at uh, Dick Hines, the, the now passed into heaven, Dick Hines' place in Marion. 
And honest to goodness, what it was, it was just like this, this immediate, without sounding cheesy, or with sounding cheesy, it was love at first sight. And it was, as things progressed so rapidly, it was so clear to us and so clear to this small church that they were going to be calling us and we were going to be accepting that every time now for the rest of the weekend they would ask us a question, they would humorously preface it by saying, well, if we should call you and if you should accept, what would your view be and feeling be on blessing this? And then I would answer them by saying, well, if you should call us and if we do accept, this would be my... I mean, really, from everything that point on. Churches always have a honeymoon period, right? Everybody's excited with the new pastor and everything else. But I remember categorically about five years down the road at this church, and I'm like, okay, when's this honeymoon period going to stop? Not that I wanted it to, but five years, really? And then ten years? And, of course, the church was growing. The church was changing. I was changing. And 15 years, 20 years, and here I am <laughs> still. <laughs> but you see, all of that, when I say that I really think I can relate to Paul, the reason it has been that way is that this church, from the time of this little embryonic core, of which there are very, very, very few here left, uh, most of them got to that age uh, where they could get in their ship and sail to Florida. Um, I know there's two of our core people sitting right in front of me, Tom and Beverly St. Germain, and the little baby of the family, who was literally uh, in arms. Um, they've been behind Barb and I, and not just as the pastor, but as their friend and took an interest in our children and supported our children in those somewhat, those short-lived, tumultuous teen years and all. And so with Paul, I can say, you know, when I think of faith and when I will look back on faith, and in all the conferences that I've ever been to, listening to, to pastors, and again, I understand the, the moaning and the woes and the sorrows of their ministries and all, and I feel bad for them. I share them with them about it is possible to meet up with a group of people who apparently, like the Philippians and Paul, will be behind you from the very start and to the very end. There came a point when I was attending the annual Nita District conferences that I, I decided I am never, I'm not saying anything anymore at these conferences because everything I had to bring was, was really, it was, like, it was like Paul's saying here. It's like, man, let me tell you about my church. Let me tell you what they did for us this week. Let me tell you what's happening in the church. Let me tell you about the people coming forward for serving. Let me tell you about this. Let me tell you about that. And, here, and then there, my wife says she's going to leave me if I don't resign. <laughs> I'm like, huh? I'm not saying that Barb never threatened that, but that's, No. So truly with Paul, this is my Philippian church. And again, again, though cheesy, I guess my way of wrapping up at a very awkward place, and we're not getting to the intestines. <laughs> we're not getting to the guts of the sermon today. That is to say, thank you from the bottom of my intestines.
That'll make more sense. That'll make more sense next week. Lord in heaven, truly it is with joy that I thank you for blessing Barbara and I with really our family at faith. And I so pray for the fellowship of your spirit, the comfort of your overwhelming, transcending circumstances, kinds of peace and joy be upon the people here who love you with their whole heart and their whole mind. And that you would just take us into the future, Lord, for you, for your glory, whatever that future holds. In your name, I give thanks. Amen.